Welcome to New Hope Chapel Sunday morning praise and worship service. I welcome those people online. I miss you. I'd like to have, have you here. Um, this can't go on forever, guys. If you have a reason, a condition, I don't want you here. I want you home. But if you don't, because you're simply enjoying the lay back, like I told you before, I do my virtual courts hearings with a polo shirt and night shorts. They don't know. So that's how you're worshiping, perhaps. I know I probably would. So if we have any visitors, I'm the crazy one, just so you know. In fact, I was talking to one visitor this morning, and I told him that I'm, one of the, I'm the oldest pastor here. I have been around forever in a day, and that if he wants refreshing youth, you'll have to wait for Pastor Bob next week. You know, and, but he's still here. He's, you know, I, I'm, he's still here. Thanks for coming. The title of my sermon this morning is The Only Way. My text is the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. And it goes into chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. That's printed in your handouts, uh, the text as well as the outline, which is short this week. And those of you on line will only have the outline. I suggest you get the New King James Version in your phones to follow so we can all be on the same page. But I've got to tell you something. The first service woke me up to the fact that many, they're going to have to hear this sermon again because I didn't mean it to be so, but it is heady. It's intellectual. It's a throwback to the way I used to deliver sermons in the past, and people would have to come with dictionaries and encyclopedias and whatever else they needed to make sure they could follow me. So it's a little heady, a little intellectual. But if you stay with me, hopefully I won't lose you. But it's not me directing your thoughts. Amen? All the years that I have been preaching here, I always turn to God to anoint my words. His thoughts, and they are clearly his thoughts this morning. And so I look to Psalm 1914 for that assistance. And so, dear Lord, this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen? You know, I'm always a little amused when I hear a non-Christian describe Jesus as a good man whose general teachings are useful to follow. I'm amused because when I hear that, my first thought is always, I don't think you've ever actually looked at his teachings. I think that because very little of what Jesus taught and said is easy for us to accept. It's even harder to follow. Consider this. Jesus said that we are to deny ourselves and follow him. Luke 9.23. I mean, that just flies in the face of the take care of yourself and make yourself happy mantra of today's Western culture. And Jesus also said, do not resist the one who is evil, but turn the other cheek. Matthew 5.39. Now that just seems idiotic. 
Having grown up in the Southwest, I'm not sure that there is much more offensiveness to our American cowboy mentality than that. How about all the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. The meek. Those who hunger and thirst. The peacemakers. Those who are reviled and persecuted. No one in the right mind aspires to be these kinds of people. And yet, these are the ones that Jesus says are most blessed. See, my point is that much of what Jesus said was tough, both to understand, but even more so to actually follow. And yet, we come this morning to perhaps the most radical and challenging thing that Jesus ever said. John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one gets, comes to the Father except through me. Now, how arrogant and intolerant is that? How can anyone claim that there's only one way? How can anyone even really know that there's only one way? And that's why John 14, 6 is so important. It's because this verse shows that it's not you or me who are making this claim. It's not Christianity that claims it to be true, but some higher than any person or earthly institution does so. Jesus, the word becomes flesh, the eternal God who became incarnate, is the one who speaks this truth and reality to us. We're not claiming Jesus is the only way. Christianity isn't claiming Jesus is the only way. Jesus himself claims to be the only way. We simply receive that claim and bear witness to it. This is what Jesus says. The question then is do you believe Jesus, which is what this whole book has been about. As John will tell us at the very end of this book, John 20, 31, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Quite simply, this is who Jesus is and what he claims. Our lesson is simple, but it's deep and profound this morning. Jesus, as you'll see, is the only way that a person can be brought into the family of God and into a personal fellowship with God. And so first, in your outline, consider the way of Jesus is the life of the people of God. And the first thing John shows us is that the way of Jesus is the life of the people of God. Verse 31 of chapter 13 begins with what we commonly call the upper room discourse. See, Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. He's, he's just inaugurated the Lord's Supper with them. He has sent Judas away knowing that Judas goes to betray him. And now, the moment has come. John 13, 31, 32. He says, listen. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, 
God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. We must remember that Jesus' glory was ultimately manifested in his crucifixion. It's quite something counter-logical. That's that Jesus is suffering is his exaltation. But that is what Jesus is saying here, that the time has come for the king to be crucified. And so, what Jesus aims to do is to try to explain to his disciples that he's about to go away, but it will be for their benefit. And moreover, he wants to assure them that they will not be left alone. They're not going to understand everything right now, but he's saying that after his death and resurrection, it'll all make sense to them. And he's giving them the instruction they're going to need in a little while. But first, a command. In our text, John 13, 34, he says, Jesus, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. What makes this commandment new? You see, this commandment to love is old, as it is the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18. But what makes it new is not the command to love itself, but the mode of love, the depth, and the type of love. Listen, love one another in the same way that I have loved you. And of course, this begs the question, how has Jesus loved us? First, Jesus has loved us by giving himself up for us. In other words, by dying on a cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. We generally think this is the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross, to make atonement for sins. But that's not enough. What the atonement does is secure not just forgiveness for sin, but Jesus' death also secures the glorification of the church. Jesus' death did not just restore us to the state Adam and Eve were in back in the garden. No, Adam and Eve were good in the garden, but they had not yet been made righteous or glorified. And Jesus' death does more than just restore Eden. It restores our glorification for the eternal kingdom in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And then Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says that through the cross, Jesus sanctifies the church, literally, to make holy, to purify, to concentrate, to set apart. And so in love, Jesus takes rebellious sinners like you and me, and he sets us apart from the realm of evil. 1 Peter 2, 9 states, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The death of Jesus calls us out. It's set apart the church as a chosen holy people. The literal meaning of the word church is the called out ones and not of anything you have done. You can't even claim that you responded. 
Jesus claimed you for himself and he ripped you from the slavery of sin and evil in which you were once in bondage. You were drowning. He rescued you from the floodwaters. And this is the power and the grace of the bridegroom. This is a kind of love that Jesus has for his church. In love, Jesus not only set the church apart, but he actually cleanses the church. This cleansing is a purifying work, a purging, if you will, and it is twofold. You see, first, there is a declarative cleansing that we call justification. The work of Jesus declares you objectively to be clean. In other words, though you are not actually righteous, because of Jesus' righteousness covering you, God declares you to be righteous because you are in Christ. Galatians 2.20 states, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Of course, at the same time in the Christian life, it is vital that you start following Jesus and living righteously. We are called to become, in practice, what God has declared us to be already. This is the subjective cleansing that comes through the washing of water with the word. As an example, you know, this language draws our mind first and foremost to baptism. For while baptism does not save you, it does represent the beginning of the Christian walk and is a spiritual command whereby God confirms and assures us in our faith. To be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit means to be now associated and identified with the triune God. But note the exclusion, inclusion of the word with the washing, and that is that the Christian life is to be one whereby we are continually fed by God's word. And the more you read scripture and the more the spirit applies it to your life, the more you will mature and grow in righteousness. Let me put it to you very simply. You cannot expect to mature as a Christian unless you are daily ingesting God's word, being washed and edified in scripture. And so, the Christian life begins with justification. When we confess our sins and call upon Jesus for salvation, God declares us to be righteous and holy. And after justification, God continues this process through sanctification, the process of becoming in practice holy and set apart. And when we're baptized in the name of God and commit ourselves to the knowledge and obedience of the scriptures, God enables you to grow in maturity and faith. But finally, at the end of this age, the Christian life will culminate in glorification. And glorification is when we will receive new resurrected bodies and God will make us completely perfect, holy, and righteous. You know, Jesus tells us in Ephesians 5, 26 to 27 that he will present the church to him in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You know, the picture that Paul is providing here 
is essentially that of a marriage ceremony of Christ in the church. I got to tell you that at the end of this age, and at the beginning of the next age, there will be a massive ceremony between Christ and his church, between Christ and every single individual that is his. And we read about it in the Revelation. Consider chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. Hear me. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Amen. Well, all of this, like the last five or ten minutes of this sermon, has just been a brief summary of the way Jesus has loved us. And it is this kind of love that he commands us now to show one another. The love we have received from him is to be the very essence of how we now live the entirety of our lives. You see, when Jesus tells his followers to love as he loved, he's, of course, not expecting us to do everything exactly as he did. But instead, he wants us to move forward toward the same end as him. In other words, we are to love each other in a sacrificial way, leading to one another's spiritual maturity, or put another way. Listen, when Jesus tells us to love one another, he is commanding us to pursue one another's sanctification. This means your calling is to make your brother or sister's growth in Christ's likeness a priority in your own life. That's a radical calling. Why? Because in most things in life, we typically care most about ourselves before others. And I find this especially true when it comes to spiritual matters. If you're a serious Christian, then you're going to be focused on your own spiritual growth, making sure you're getting fed. And don't get me wrong, it's important for you to get spiritually fed and to grow. But Jesus is saying that should not be your priority. Your priority ought to be the spiritual growth of others, which means putting their needs above your own. And this starts at home. Husbands are to put the sanctification of their wives in the, on the top of their priorities. Wives doing the same for their husbands. A godly marriage will be one where each spouse is sacrificially pursuing the Christ-likeness of each other. And then together, parents are to pursue the spiritual growth of their children. Then to pursue the spiritual growth of your brothers and sisters in the church. And then, finally, pursuing the spiritual growth of those whom God has put in your life who are not yet believers. Listen, understand this biblical model you are commanded to prioritize the Christ-likeness of one, your spouse, two, your kids, three, your church family, and four, non-Christians in your life. Now notice, 
Who's not on the list? You. And again, that's not to say your own growth is unimportant. But it is to say that you are to be more concerned with blessing others than your own blessing. I know that there are a few out there who are really incredible givers, who deplete themselves for the benefit of others. And those people need to sometimes be reminded that it's okay to feed themselves. And I know there are some of those people out there. There aren't many of them. You're probably not one of them. I know I'm not. The overwhelming majority of us are pretty selfish creatures who need to be reminded of the command to love one another as we have been loved by Jesus. Second, your outline consider the only way to abide with God. And so Jesus tells the disciples that they are to love one another but that they will only be able to do so because he loved them first. And so as we move into chapter 14, that's what we'll see Jesus continue to elaborate on now. He has given them the command, and in a moment, he will give them further instructions. But first, having told them the hour has come, he tells them this in John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. The only other time in the Gospel of John that the Father's house is mentioned is in chapter 2. This is a scene, if you remember, when Jesus clears the temple. The main idea of that scene was to show how Jesus himself is the true temple, meaning he is the meeting place of heaven and earth, the place where God dwells in tabernacles with creation. That bears repeating. Jesus is the meeting place of heaven and earth, the place where God dwells in tabernacles with creation. And so Jesus now develops this idea more. You see, if the Father's house is that joining of heaven and earth, then what Jesus is about to do is truly create that place, that new city, that new creation in himself. Let me repeat that. If the Father's house is in that joining of heaven and earth, then what Jesus is about to do is to truly create that house, that new city, that new creation in himself. Now Jesus says this to the disciples as to comfort them. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going away, but you know the way. Poor Thomas, he's really speaking on behalf of everyone when he says, wait, Jesus, this makes no sense. So Jesus makes it clear. You do know the way, Jesus tells the disciples. 
And you can be confident of coming into the fullness of life with God simply because you know me. And that's where John 14, 6 comes in. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Father is within Jesus. I'll give you that scripture in a second. You see, in context, this isn't a negative claim denouncing other religions. This isn't even a religious claim at all. Jesus is simply repeating the same fact that we've seen throughout John's gospel, that humanity isn't right with God. The world is estranged from him. Creation has been corrupted. Heaven and earth have been separated by a great divide. What Jesus is saying is not merely that he is the way to heaven, but that he alone is the only way the entire world can come to rights. This isn't only about an afterlife of bliss. This is about bringing in Jesus a whole new creation, heaven and earth, into existence in himself. Therefore, there is just one creation and only one way to get there. It isn't simply arrogant or intolerant to claim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. It's simply his claim as the only one who can join heaven and earth together, for he alone is the word made flesh. And we know this. Why? Because we have heard his words and we have seen his works. Now consider John 14, 8 to 11, which states, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe and on account of the works themselves. Listen. There cannot be multiple ways to God because God himself says that he has made only one way. God could have made multiple ways, but he decided before the foundations of the world that the only way to him would be through him. That is why God himself came and made his home amongst us. He put on our humanity that we could receive the right to be called children of God. And that is who Jesus has been proving himself to be, God. His words and his work have proven that he indeed is the word made flesh, son of God and son of man. Now, you can disagree with him, you can reject him, but it is completely impossible to say he is just one of many ways. You know, I love what C.S. Lewis said on this matter in his classic book, Mere Christianity. Lewis writes, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall on his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. C.S. Lewis. Jesus himself made certain claims, which cannot be refuted when studied honestly. He is therefore either a lunatic, a liar, or the Son of God. And it is principally his work, the empty tomb, which answers the question for you. In other words, that we have before us this morning is Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. His offer is to take the emptiness and brokenness of our lives to offer his life as a sacrifice for ours so that we can be made right with God, our creator, and we can live as God designed us to do. God says, Jesus says, let, let me take your failures and imperfections and give you life and reconciliation with God. And we know that Jesus can do this because the tomb is empty. He has proven to who he was and who he claimed to be by rising from the dead. This is all his work. So your only response this morning is to then acknowledge, to admit, and confess he really is Lord and God and surrender yourself to him. He is the way uh, that all things, including yourself, are made new. He is the truth. There is no deceit or falsehood in him. He is the life, the fullness of everything you were made to be. Believe. Amen? As we close our service and you go back to your homes, I want you to focus on who Jesus is. We know that there is a divide between heaven and earth. We also know that it is to be healed. This is a new, will be a new creation. We ourselves understand that we will be new creations. And this new creation is in Jesus. If you want it, you have to go find it in Jesus only. That's a profound thought, and it's... It's something for you to consider. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will all tabernacle together in Jesus. And the pathway to heaven is Jesus only because that is where it is. Amen? Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for hearing our prayers feeding us with your word and encouraging us in our meeting together. Take, take us and use us to love and serve you and to serve all people in the power of your spirit. And in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We'll see you next week. God love you.